content warning, mentions of sexual assault, child abuse, mental health issues, and death. Hello and welcome to the Billy Shears Club. I'm your host, Caleb Clark, and with me today we have Nate Guype. Uh, Nate, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. Today we've got two lovely albums for you folks. We have Into the Woods, original Broadway production, composed by Stephen Sondheim, and version 2.0 by the band Garbage, who aren't garbage, but they call themselves that. Uh, why don't you take us away with a little bit on uh, Sondheim, Nathaniel? Sure, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this is a soundtrack to a musical called Into the Woods. Um, it came out in 1987, and then it was performed on Broadway in 1988. Um, and that was actually the same year that the Phantom of the Opera was on Broadway. So they were kind of competing with each other for a lot of awards. Um, mm-hmm. And despite, you know, the massive success of Phantom of the Opera, Into the Woods still uh, won a couple Tonys. So it was a very good musical. Um, and I actually was introduced to this musical when the Disney movie came out, what, like a couple now. Um, which I really enjoyed. It had Anna Kendrick and a couple other big stars in it. Um, and then I kind of heard about the Broadway musical. I've got a friend who's really into Broadway musicals. Um, and she had this playlist um, with some of her favorite Broadway songs on it. And one of the songs on there was No One Is Alone, which is a song um, from Into the Woods. And I really liked it. Um, it's got a kind of a cool, cool message to it. Um, so then I went and listened to the whole soundtrack um, really enjoyed it. One of the things that I like about it a lot is something that Stephen Sondheim is known for. He does a lot of, uh, he composes a lot of music that goes places that people don't expect it to go. Um, Just kind of like strange musical intervals or kind of unexpected little melodies that he'll throw in. Um, And so my friend who really likes musicals tells me that he does this so much that it's like a thing in the Broadway show business, that if you're auditioning for a show, uh, you never choose a Sondheim piece to audition because they're going to have an accompanist there playing the piano. And if you choose a Sondheim piece, it's really hard to sight read because the music is so different and unique. Um, and oh, cool. it isn't going to go well because it's hard to sight read. Um, so he's, that's like one of the things that he's really known for. Um, but he's really big in Broadway, and people really uh, jump at the chance to work with him. Um, and I think that's one of the one of the key things to his success is that he just does things that are very different, um, and things that people don't really expect to hear. Um, yeah. So the show the show itself um, explores like a lot of different themes. Um, one of the ones that strikes me the most is like the theme of. I would call it kind of like relativity or subjectivity. Um, kind of, is there a very definite like right or wrong? Um, I think, and I think that the music itself kind of lends itself to the exploration of that theme because it's so unexpected and kind of makes you question things. Like when you listen to it, you think it's going to go one way, like the melody, the tune, and then it goes another way and you're kind of, unsure of yourself and I think that lends itself to exploring the idea of maybe you know you have this idea of what's right and what's wrong but maybe you should question that a little bit more and examine it a little bit more and look closer into that um so that's a big theme of the musical and then they also do a lot of exploration with the relationship between parents um and their children 
And the entire musical is, um, they have different fairy tales going on. So there's Little Red Riding Hood, there's Cinderella, Rapunzel's in it. Um, yeah, I think that's most of them. Yeah, I think Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah, Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, like quick mentions of like Sleeping Beauty and uh, Snow White. Like I yeah. think they're like very minor characters, but they show up. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but they kind of weave all these these older tales together into this new story. Um, mm -hmm. Wishing is another theme that's really prominent um, in the whole musical. The whole first bit. Um, it's kind of almost like a self-contained story. The whole first um, half of the musical happens and basically everybody ends up getting what they wish for. And then the musical starts in the second half and they have new wishes that are kind of like outgrowths of what they wished for in the first part of the musical because maybe what they wished for initially wasn't really what they wanted or they got what they wanted, but in this kind of unexpected way, and it kind of caused new problems that made them wish for new and different things. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting musical that explores a lot of really interesting themes. Um, and I think that the soundtrack, more so than a lot of other musicals I've listened to, really lends itself to kind of exploring those themes through not just the lyrics, but the actual music itself, which I just think is so cool. So that was the reason that I, I chose it. Very nice. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of those, I think. It's my, yeah, trying to pick a lot of threads there. Uh, I guess my general thought, like, my first, since, like, this is a musical, or since, like, to, like, go over the plot. Well, actually, you did pretty good. I'll go through the plot anyway. I can, Do you want me to go through the plot a little bit? Yeah, just for like context for listeners, since it's like the musical, but also spoilers if you haven't seen the show because it's yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, spoilers for sure. Um, yeah, so the the play opens and um, there's a prologue, and basically it's a song where everybody is singing about what they wish for. So you have the baker and his wife who wish to have a child. Um, you have Cinderella who wants to go to the ball, classic. You have Little Red Riding Hood who is uh, trying to basically steal a bunch of bread from the baker and his wife because she wants to bring this bread um, and all these goodies to her grandmother in the woods. Um, and then you have Jack and his mother. And um, Jack is kind of a fool in this play. And so his mother wishes that they had more money and that her son wasn't a fool. And she's sending him to this, uh, the market to sell their cow so they can get some money. Um, and Jack is, Jack is really good friends with this cow. And so he wishes that he didn't have to sell the cow. Um, and then there's a witch. Um, and the witch comes and tells the baker and his wife that the reason they can't have a child is because um, she has laid a curse on their household, that it's always going to be barren. Um, and then to lift this curse, she says if baker brings her um, four objects, she can make a potion and that will lift the curse. So they have to bring hair as yellow as corn, a slipper um, as pure as gold, the hood as red as blood, and then the cow as white as milk. So you can kind of already see that the baker's, uh, the baker and the wife's story is sort of going to intertwine with all these other stories. And then the rest of the first act is 
them running around the woods and interacting with these other characters and, you know, getting this hood from Little Red Riding Hood and getting the cow from Jack. Um, and then in the course of all this, a beanstalk is planted. Jack goes up into the sky, steals a bunch of gold from a giant. Um, and then uh, in the second half of the play, the giant comes down the beanstalk and wants retribution from Jack. Um, and when that happens, um, the beanstalk, I think, is chopped down and causes kind of this earthquake, which sort of rearranges the world. Um, and people, once again, are kind of lost in the woods. Um, and there's people who want to um, protect Jack, and there's people who want to give Jack up to the giant. Um, there's kind of this, um, like, uh, a conflict between these characters. Um, and what they're going to do about this whole situation. Um, and the second half kind of reframes a lot of these wishes because a lot of these characters in the beginning get what they wish for in the second half, um, in the first half. And then in the second half, you have, you know, Cinderella marries the prince, does get to go to the festival, but kind of realizing that maybe the prince isn't really who she wants to be with. Um, the baker and his wife get a child, but they wish that they had more room in their house. Um, Jack and his mother are rich because he stole the gold from the giant, but um, now the giant is after Jack. So the mother is kind of, you know, wishing that maybe that, that wasn't the case. Um, yeah. So yeah, there, there's, they just kind of go through the woods. Um, and then the, the, the way it ends is kind of, um, it's almost just like a recognition of the fact that maybe things aren't as clear as they all initially thought. Um, and all yeah. these characters have kind of learned that maybe what they wished for initially isn't exactly what they wanted or needed. Um, so it kind of follows the trope of people go into the woods and are transformed in an enchanted wood. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of character growth that happens. Um, yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you. You're nice. Yeah, I think my very good relation. I think my first big thought, I guess, when I come into this play is like how extremely dark it gets. Like, yeah. throughout, like, uh, like, even in the first half, like, the wolf has some very dark undertones to his character and the way he approaches Little Red Riding Hood, and then his actor ends up also playing Cinderella's Prince, which puts all sorts of subtext there. Right. And then, uh, the it also just brings the entire fertility sterility subtext of like mm. for the baker and his wife, like you know how that song it takes two that seems a lot like wow, honey, that was great, and then but then. The marriage falling apart again later on and right. the, because the having the child didn't work it's like a very cynical take on this marriage and then uh yeah and then as it goes on there's like everyone's abandoning each other and giving each other up and basically human sacrifices to the giant it's a it gets grim and also the the witch has a it's sort of like entangled where it's sort of that she's very clearly abusive but also it's like she she does have more attachment than Mother Gothel does, which makes it all the more disturbing. So it's like, eh. right, right. 
Yeah, actually, yeah. so the there's like a lot of sexual subtext in Into the Woods, which oh, tons. honestly I completely missed um, when I watched the movie and when I listened to the show. Um, but as I was yeah. kind of reading more about it um, and looking up costumes too, it's much. I think it's much more apparent if you actually see the musical itself, which I have never <laughs> seen the musical. Um, but oh, me neither. The, <laughs> You, you can kind of tell in the song, Hello, Little Girl, that the wolf sings about Little Red Riding Hood, which like mm-hmm. definitely seems like a predatory sexual kind of song. Um, yeah. And then the wolf's costume itself, um, I think in the Broadway original play, has like an anatomically correct penis on it. Um, it's very, oh, my. It's, yeah, right. It's, it's going along with it's a it's a with some more mature themes that's definitely the case um and you think about even um when they're singing in the prologue when the witch is talking about how the baker's father the reason the curse was placed was because the baker's father stole from her garden um and she uses the words he was robbing me raping me and so there's this idea that maybe that's kind of like a metaphor for the witch being raped by the father um and he even like steals her beans, which is could also be kind of a metaphor there for like taking someone's virginity. Um, so there's like a ton of that going on. Um, so you can see it as you know there there are these, I guess, more innocent fairy tales going on, but there's definitely a lot of more mature themes underneath all of it as well. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, like what you're talking about, how the wolf and the prince are played by the same character. There's a lot of that, too, um, where you're kind of meant to draw these connections between, you know, the wolf is like this predatory character, both, you know, a wolf is a predator, but then he's also kind of like a sexual predator with Little Red Riding Hood. Um, and then the prince is also kind of predatory because his whole thing is that he gets Cinderella, but then he is not faithful towards her. Um, and I think... Are the other character doubles there the narrator also plays the mysterious man who is uh, meant to be the baker's father who kind of comes back in this sort of vision um and tempts the baker to run away from his child and his wife um so there's that kind of double uh, role going on there um uh, it's I think, yeah i mentioned also like the Lady who plays Jack's mother also plays like uh, Cinderella's deceased mother, and I think a couple yes. other maternal characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she's just the mom. Yeah, the matriarchal <laughs> character. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple, a couple double roles like that. Yeah, I think the nice thing about this, where it's like, sometimes definitely much more very intentional with all these, all the darkness and the, the. Uh, double acting because it always goes back to the different themes like you were mentioning earlier relativity and the other ones like it the play all builds into this or like my personal take was more like i guess very hopsy and like i got more like all these people are just basically short-sighted and selfish and it just takes a lot of effort to be a good person and so like yes. something like that yeah, and so and even, yeah um yeah. And even the idea of, like, what does it even mean to be a good person? I really love the line um, in The Last Midnight when the witch is singing. Um, and she's talking yeah. about how, 
these people, she tells, she tells kind of the whole cast of characters is around her and she tells them, you're not good, you're not bad, you're just nice. And then she says, I'm the witch, I'm not good, I'm not bad, I'm just right. Um, and then earlier, Little Red Riding Hood has a line um, where she says, nice is different than good. So it's almost like Sondheim is laying out this idea that there's a way that we can just kind of be nice and be non-confrontational and do the easy thing, even if it's not necessarily the right thing, you know, because we're conditioned to think that a lot of times the easy thing to do is the wrong thing or the, the right thing to do is the hard thing to do. And I think he kind of challenges that um, in this musical. Um, Definitely. Which, yeah, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, especially with the uh, this song, uh, no, no more. Yeah, where like you were mentioning, where the baker's father shows up. Mm-hmm. That's definitely like the very direct petition of those ideas. Mm-hmm. There's um, there's this is semi-related. This is just my favorite part of the whole musical. So I just got to talk about it. Um, in the song, no one is alone. Um, <laughs> There's, they're kind of singing this whole song, and initially it is like it's kind of what you would you would think it would be about. No one is alone. Like someone is always on your side. Like no matter what you think, there are always other people who think the same thing, and it's like a comforting thing, you know. Like you're not crazy. Other people agree with you, kind of. And then yeah. all of a the sudden, there's this one line. They're singing, "No one is alone" in this comforting way. Um, so they sing, "No one is alone," and then the baker goes careful no one is alone and the way he says it and the way he sings it it's like a warning all of a sudden and you're kind of like oh like that was shocking that was surprising that's the kind of thing that Sondheim does right yeah. Um, yeah and you realize that you can take that as a scary thing too like it can be comforting to think that no one is alone but it's also frightening because it means that people who are against you are not alone either like and you should be careful because, you know, there could be a mob of people who disagree with you. Um, and I just loved that subversion. Um, I think that was the first one where I was like, oh, like this is happening a lot throughout this musical. Um, that one is just really obvious. Um, and that, I think that that touches on a lot of the different themes, but one of them being kind of the ambiguity between right, what is right, and what is wrong. Um, is there are reasonable people on both sides and and also the ambiguity and like okay but what does that even mean it means yeah great like that's a comfort there are people on my side but it also means like watch out there are people who are not on your side too and maybe a lot um yeah. i think that's a really i just really love that instance in the musical because yeah. it's such a it's such a strange reversal of the tone of yeah. a song yeah, definitely. And you can flip it from all sorts of different sides. Like, I think that it plays into, like, if this was a first-person musical from the perspective of any character, it could very easily shift. Like, even the giant's widow who, like, you know, was just this force of destruction. You look at it from her point, it's like a really sad John Wick movie. It's like... <laughs> yeah, definitely. I love that. Yeah. Right. Uh, She's just, these are all terrible people. And they killed her husband. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I think, yeah. I imagine when people are watching the musical, 
there are probably people who are like, you know, they really probably should give Jack up because this giant is like just walking around and crushing people. Like maybe we should just let her take Jack and that would probably save a lot of lives. And then there are people who watch it and are like, no, like you can't, you can't give up Jack. Like that would be terrible, you know? And I find myself, I would be what the witch calls nice because I find myself in the Jack camp where I'm like, oh, you can't just give up this boy, but you know, if you're weighing human life, I, you know, it's hard to know. It's definitely a, a gray area. And I think that's exactly what the musical wants. So, yeah. yeah I'm curious, uh, what were you like your favorite moments or stuff? Like Ooh. any particular songs or performers? Yes, yeah. So I do really like No One Is Alone. Um, one, because I think it's just a really pretty song. Um, mm -hmm. And two, because it's got that moment in there, uh, the reversal between no one is alone, that's a comforting thing, and no one is alone, you know, watch out, there could be lots of people after you. Um, I think that was just a really cool switch there. Um, I also really like the prologue, which is the first one where everyone is singing about their wishes. Um, because it introduces all the characters, and it's got this... There's a lot of different people singing um, and it kind of jumps around between them all, which I think is so fun. Um, and you kind of get to hear the perspective of every character that you're gonna be following. And I think it does such a great job of setting up the rest of the musical. And I mean, it tells you exactly what all these people want, right? So you kind of, you, you come to an understanding of all these different characters very quickly. Um, and there is a lot of characters that you're following. So that is very necessary. Oh, yeah. The musical does a really great job of doing that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I also really like Agony, and then the realize oh. that the two princes sing, the prince and his brother, um, yeah. because it's just it's so funny. These princes singing and um, trying to you know outdo each other with, oh my life is so hard. The girl that I want to marry is up in a tower, and like oh, you know nothing, like my life is so much harder. Um, it's just so funny to hear them singing about that. And they're, both the princes are kind of like slimy characters in the musical, like you're not supposed to really like them. Um, but in these, in these songs, they are so funny, especially the reprise when they're talking about <laughs> one has a problem with blood and they like kind of make fun of him. And then the other has a problem with dwarves and they make fun of him. And I just think it's, they're so funny. They're both such, they're both very like vapid characters, probably called himbos. <laughs> I think that really comes out in these songs in a very humorous way. Um, I think our himbos, they're the Gaston type. A himbo is kind. <laughs> there we go, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um i really like those songs i also i used to it used to kind of bother me the one that the wolf sings hello little girl um i think it's supposed to kind of bother you because it is a very very creepy song um yeah. but i also think that it does what it does very well um like, I think it walks the line between, like, it, it stands up as a metaphor. It's never, like, oh, 
graphic that it's like oh but it also it also always like makes sense you know and they have that whole yeah. kind of that whole um motif of the path like the wolf is trying to lure her off the path um <laughs> and i think that's a really interesting idea that there's like a right way to go and it's uh like the the, the idea of like traditional sexual morality where it's like you know you you save yourself for the person you're going to marry you know or whatever and the wolf is trying to like lure her off of that um and i just think it's a really it is a really interesting song um, and a really interesting exploration of that theme of sexuality um and so i i like it more now than i used to i used to i used to just think it was so creepy and i still think it's very creepy but the creepiness is in service to what the song is. Um, and I just think it's a very artfully done song. Those are great picks. I would definitely agree on uh, Prologue and Agony and uh, You're Not Alone. I think I would also have to join Stay With Me because it's The Witches. I get very complicated feelings about the wish with on mm -hmm. how her very overprotective and pretty much straight up abusive behaviors towards Rapunzel have like destroyed her psyche and she ends up actually getting trampled by the giantess after having an hysterical meltdown. But it's also like her pouring out her soul. Like you do see this glimmer of like the sincere attachment, but it's just like it's you can't really reconcile the two parts, but it's just like seeing them next to each other, just very uh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. The witch. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say the other ones would probably be uh your fault. Last midnight for just like roasting everyone, and also I just love the witch as a performer. Bernadette Peters is yeah. great. <laughs> she gets. <laughs> You're all terrible, and I'm leaving. <laughs> She is wonderful. I do love her. Um, yeah, the witch and Rapunzel's relationship is so interesting. Um, I I forgot about the the kind of musical motif throughout the musical that Rapunzel sings, and there's also an agony that like ah that part. Um, <laughs> sorry for the singing; it's terrible. But <laughs> that like motif, I think, is so beautiful um yeah. i think the witch and rapunzel's relationship i think is such a great exploration of the the mother and child relationship too right um because the witch talks about how you know children will never listen and then later she talks about how actually she kind of revises her statement she says children might disobey but children always listen and i think that's oh. such an interesting kind of twist on her original statement um because you realize that he kind of realizes as you know a pseudo parent that the children are always listening and what you do to children what you say to children is going to have an effect even if it doesn't seem like it will even if they're doing the opposite of what you tell them to do what you're telling them still has an effect and so you have to be you have to be careful um I think that's a really interesting take on the parent and child relationship. 
Yeah, they're big moments. They're definitely like a No More. That one was a great song. And then I have to give shout outs to some of the performers. Like I said, uh, The Witch was great on here. Uh, mm-hmm. The Wolf and Slash, The Princes, they're great. Mm-hmm. Uh, writing on Jack's Mother, like, I don't think they got as much screen time. And they're like, I wouldn't want them to have more, really, but they were both really great for their roles. Like, are they really? Like you're saying, like, a Sondheim just has a great composition skills with this one. Like, this is just like that wonderful Peter and the Wolfy tone with everything, where it's all sort of bouncy and chipper and sort of does sort of the word painting with you. But then, of course, the death. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting yeah. juxtaposition. Yeah. And he does that so, like, it, the whole musical is like that. You know, you have these fairy tales, which I guess are, are kids' stories, but they're also kind of more based on the Grimm's fairy tales, which are traditionally a mm-hmm. little bit more dark, you know? So you have that kind of interesting um, dynamic at opposition at play. Um, <laughs> that's another kind of that you know, these these two very disparate things that he brings together and you know, yeah. weaves into the story. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's, I think it's a little bit unique among fractured fairy tales. I'm not an expert, but it seems like usually it's, there's a range where it's like, on the one end you have, it's just a kid's show that takes on fairy tales and throws in some, like, you know, Oh, this is kind of silly, isn't it? With maybe some like pop culture references, like you know, all the post Shrek ones. Yeah, yeah. all the post Shrek ones. Shrek is pretty great. <laughs> and I'll oh, die yeah, on I that. Shrek. I love Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and then on the other one, you have like the ones that's like, I think there was that Hansel and Gretel movie that came out a few years ago, where it's just like, our fairy tales shoot people and they swear and have sex and like nothing you don't get past that but this is at a good spot with like shrek and the wicked and twisted where it's like you know using it for something right right it's like it's like appropriate for children but or at least you know the disney movie uh, not, not appropriate for children i don't know if the musical itself would be appropriate for children it is, it is at no. the wolf costume but <laughs> but but also there's a lot like kind of what we've been saying there's a lot of mature themes in there too if you um you know can see the metaphors and see all the all the symbolism going on behind the scenes not even behind the scenes it's all very obvious but <laughs> I'm just not not super astute sometimes when it comes to noticing these things. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's something for there's something for everyone in there, which is really cool. Yeah. Good job, Steve and team. <laughs> Amen. All right, ready for some garbage? I'm so ready for some garbage. Bring it on. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll upload quick page just so I can get the people's names right. But I'll cut this out, bit out, but I just gotta it up real quick. Yeah. One of them the documentary series, but I'm not sure which one. Mm. Okay, yeah. Alright, so a little background on the band garbage. They're uh one of the many alternative rock electronic type groups that sprung out of the 90s like 
it would take days to name all the generative rock groups that managed to get some sort of acclaim. Uh, they started in uh, about late ni- early 90s. The three guys from Wisconsin, Duke Erickson, Steve Marker, and Butch Vig. They're all the instrumentalists. They all had played together before. And they all decided to start a band that was like sort of very interested in remixes and like using little bits of electronics and stuff. Uh, side, side note for interesting tidbit, uh, Butch Vig at, at this point uh, produced the first two Smashing Pumpkins albums as well as Nirvana's Nevermind and a bunch of Sonic Youth albums and would later on produce a Green Day's 21st Century Breakdown. And uh, Duke Erickson has a uh, documentary series called American Epic where it just has a bunch of uh, musicians and it was pretty highly acclaimed. So they do cool stuff on the side. But yeah, uh, they they tried playing some songs, but they realized none of them could sing very well. And so they went looking around and they found this uh, late, the Scottish singer named Shirley Manson playing in another band. And they managed to bring her over by saying, hey, this guy produced Nevermind. Like Tilt Smells Like Teen Spirit? This guy. And so she joins the band. Uh, in 1996, they released their first album called uh, Garbage with uh, a couple big hits called Stupid Girl and uh, I'm Only Happy When It Rains, which are both really fun. And then this one, 1998, they managed to come out with it. And they also do the Bond theme for The World Is Not Enough. And then after about 2001, they lose a lot of their steam. They lose their steam a little bit and goes on and off hiatus a couple of times. But nowadays, they're pretty much back together and touring. They're generally... Their vibe is generally, you know, very sensory overload, electronic dance-influenced rock music. It's very dark and alternative and gnarly, with Shirley Manson sort of singing about how much she has mental health struggles in this sort of very mucking tone. But as for this album specifically, uh, they started very soon after their first album. Like, they restarted recording within two months. You know, it was all jam sessions, uh, according to... Surely, on top of their previous influences, they were sort of like electronic and rock. They were also listening to a lot of uh, British trip-hop, a lot of uh, ladies in alternative rock like Fiona Apple and PJ Harvey and the whole Courtney Courtney Loves Band, and also uh, Missy Elliott and Timbaland, the the rap duo, rapper and producer. And uh, they just kept producing and producing. Like, I think it took... They just had these songs and they kept on jamming and they kept adding layers and tweaking and producing it. At one point, apparently they decided to, they found this abandoned candy factory and they decided, yeah, this will be interesting acoustics. And they played in there until they got a noise violate complaint. And so they had to leave. <laughs> but yeah, eventually they came out with this album and yeah, this is their second album. They had decided like, rather than try to go in a completely different direction to just like, take the sound of their previous album, which was like sort of electronic dance and pop rock influences, but through this very dark alternative rock style and take it just to the extreme. And so that's pretty much the sound. What do you think? That's my summation. Yeah. Um, I So I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this album, actually. <laughs> um, and I don't want to say that I had like low expectations going in because I didn't but when you when you suggested this to me you said something like um 
like you, like are you up for this or like you know do you do you have like the the capacity for this right now and so I was kind of like oh like I, I wonder like ooh yeah kind of maybe a little bit wary so I feel like I had solidly set my expectations at like ambivalence like baseline that way I wasn't going to be disappointed I wasn't going to be like you know whatever I was just kind of being very um objective about the situation you know kind of taking a step back um and then I listened to this for the first time when I was driving actually um and I like turned on the album and listened to the first song and I was like wow this is kind of a bob um I definitely <laughs> yeah I definitely listen to, I'd like to say that I listen to a lot of different kinds of music, um, but I, I really listen mostly to pop. Um, and like even, like I listen to some like reggaeton and stuff like that, but even that is just very poppy, very upbeat, um, pretty, you know, lots of, lots of synth. Um, and this has a lot of that, um, which I didn't, I didn't uh, initially expect. Um, and then, and then I was kind of, I, so I, my two favorite songs on this album, I really liked, I think I'm paranoid and hammering in my head. Um, I was looking at the lyrics to those and then I was kind of like, oh yeah, like I can see why Caleb kind of gave me a little bit of a, a warning, you know, because <laughs> it, <is, laughs> it is pretty, pretty dark. Um, yeah. And I think when I, when I first listened to it, um, <laughs> the lyrics are, like a little bit harder to make out um so i wasn't catching all of the lyrics um i was mostly hearing just the music um so i think i kind of missed some of that darkness on the first listen um but then that really came out in the lyrics and i was like oh yeah like i can see i can see this now um yeah. but but all in all, I I was surprised at how much I enjoyed listening to it, um, and even even now that I am I am more familiar with the lyrics, I still kind of like it. Um, it's very different than what I would normally listen to, um, especially from uh, with a woman singing vocals. That was one of the other things that really struck me a lot was the difference between this and a lot of the other. Uh, women artists that I listen to. Like I think of like Kesha and Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and Rihanna and all these big female pop stars. And so it's almost kind of refreshing because even though this is a dark album um, and there's definitely like, it was much more on, you know, the kind of darker ideas, mental health, um, depression, things like that, um, which, was refreshing in a way. It's kind of weird to say that that kind of thing was refreshing, um, but it was it was different and it was more real, I think. Um, so yeah, I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah, this is a Shirley Manson does not have like whenever the Nazi does come up, it's usually very insecure codependence is a huge theme on this album like uh there's the one called song called sleep together and that's more of just like begging someone to yeah. love you and like that just comes up over and over again in the album so yeah definitely does that i also think it like you were mentioning like comparing it to the of today like even at the time i think 
for expert, but it did seem. I want to say complete, a complete outlier. Like I'm not super familiar with Book of Hole, but I know like a. The, uh, I guess probably the breeders. I think had something a little similar to this, but the it, one thing to note was that the one of the band members said that when they were looking for a lady to sing, like they didn't want to go for someone. They noted that a lot of the women in alt rock at the time were scream like to scream a lot, and they wanted someone more like restrained a little bit. But it is interesting to compare, like a, I think more like a. Alanis Morissette or a Meredith Brooks with those kind of those kind of alternative singers. Like this is definitely a lot. They definitely dealt with like internal flaws and mental health, but it's always that they they kind of went back and forth, but they did generally have at least on their big singles, you know, a bit more buoyance and like sort of who oh, yeah, I'm cool like a uh, the right. Meredith Brooks the B, the B word. Like that, that one was pretty, that was just like, heck yeah, I'm awesome because I'm self-contradictory. Like a, the Linus Morissette's big breakup song, You Oughta Know, that's like, it's pouring out of righteous anger, but you don't get any of this here. This is just for the person who was just sort of openly weeping, basically. This is like, uh, yeah. Let's see, let's yeah. get into specific. And I, I just, just I think, I think that adds like the realness of it. And I think that's the thing that I was focusing on that was refreshing was the realness because it feels like a lot of the music that I listen to now is, um, you know, it is a performance and it is like this person as like a sex symbol or as an object or as whatever versus this is like someone with real struggles and talking about like the human experience. So it's a person as a human. And I, I really, I, I appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk. let talk some of this realness. Uh, what are some? You mentioned a couple favorite songs. I think you said, uh, which one was it? I think I'm paranoid and hammering. Is it hammering in your head or pushing? Yeah. Hammering in my head. That was the one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And what do you? Th- what What brought you? Brought you into those? Mm-hmm. If I might um, ask. Initially, <laughs> initially it was just the music it wasn't the lyrics really at all um it was just the the background um i liked how especially hammering in my head was like kind of like kind of fast kind of upbeat um i mean all the songs kind of have that you know that electronic synth vibe um but these two to me especially really had that um but i think they were kind of similar to other music i've listened to which is what drew me in initially um, and then when I was looking at the lyrics and being like, oh yeah, like, this is dark. Wow. Um, <laughs> I don't think it was like really nothing in the lyrics particularly, um, like necessarily resonated with me or, um, made me appreciate the music more, but I did, I did like that. Um, they seem to really come from a place of. Of, of experience and of someone writing a song about, you know, it wasn't like, okay, we're gonna write a song that people can get down to at the club and that, you know, people can just, you know, <laughs> get drunk and dance to, you know, it was, we're gonna write a song about things that are important to us um, and sing about things that we think the world should hear. 
Um, and I, I, I liked that. Really good takes. I think I had a lot of tracks that I really loved. Uh, See, probably my picks would probably be like when I grow up, medication, uh, special, push it. Uh, I think some had some potential. Uh, sleep together and wicked ways. Like those are good. Um, yeah, I definitely do agree. The lyrics, it's a little bit. I know. I think Shirley Manson is pretty good lyrically, but it's like it's sort of the general, you know things that you run into with a lot of 90s alternative rock, you know, it's very sort of confessional diary diary feely. So it's like not like a strong structure and use of image. It's more like uh, just laying out all these sort of stream of consciousness feelings and stuff. So that one, that style does not lend itself to the most robust lyrics, but it's still pretty, I think it's still contributed. You still get the vibe like, between like what she's saying and Shirley Manson's sort of very condescending, toxic style, like it does get across the vibe. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I definitely, yeah, also tend to prefer those like really hard hitting ones. Like when I grow up, when I grow up, that's basically a, a rave song. You know, it's just got those spoons, spoons, spoons. Right. Sort of very pounding drum beat and all the little ba 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 ba. Every time that they bring in like sort of the little cheesy uh, pop background vocals, those are always great. But then, yeah, like we're saying, the lyrics on "When I Grow Up" that's just like sort of like looking, sort of like kicking their entire career of like uh, you know all these negative feelings and leafing about them. But it's like putting it in the context of just. A little kid who wants to, who's trying to retaliate against all the stuff going on around them. So it was a really interesting address, but yeah. No. It's, it's, oh, sorry. You go, go oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's interesting. Um, I, I think a lot of these songs, to me, there was this tension between the music, which was pretty upbeat and um, pretty uh, like. It reminded me of the music that I listened to, the, the pop music that I listened to, which is very like danceable, beat heavy, electronic, um, positive, you know. Um, and you kind of made me think of it when you were talking about um, the when I grow up and the the ba ba ba's, um, versus then you have the lyrics, which are pretty dark and um, it, kind of the opposite in a lot of ways. Um, and I find myself being drawn to music like that. Like I think of like, Pumped Up Kicks is the classic <laughs> example of like kind of a jaunty beat with like kind of depressing lyrics. Um, because I think it's a really, I just really like that juxtaposition and that contrast. And I think it's a really good um, way to kind of represent struggles that people are dealing with. Because so often there's like, you know, whatever you're going through, but then there's added on struggle of trying to hide that because you're ashamed. And so like outwardly putting on like a a happy face and pretending that everything's okay. I think those songs really like having that kind of tension in your song between the music and the lyrics really auditorially makes that, illustrates that point in music. Um, And, oh, I'm losing my train of thought now. (laughs) I had something to say. Oh, it it um 
it's a lot like, you know, if we wanted to connect it back to Into the Woods. <laughs> hey. Interesting, you know, there's a similar contrast in that musical where he's using, you know, maybe these kids' stories to illustrate, you know, kids' stories in quotes, to illustrate these adult themes. Um, and I, I think that both of these albums have some interesting contrasts in them and some interesting tensions in them um, that serve to kind of make the point that they're trying to make um, in some way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's very good lyrical dissonance. It's especially like a, like a, just all of them, like, especially like a, a couple of the ones that are favorites, like a Push It and Wicked Ways, which are both about like very, relationships like on bad but it's like just these you know but yeah i will say i will say a few tracks like a and uh trick is to keep breathing and you look so fine i think i think the production style kind of backfired there because i think they were trying to tone it down and have a more serious one but i felt like they didn't work like they were still kind of too produced too many elements going like medication is the one that's closest to being fine because it has that intro where it's just the guitar and then the and then the chorus is just sort of that just feels like a giant lurch as like Shirley Manson is coming to grips with like according to her this was a story about like having to use the US health care system and not having anyone around the supporters during that time then you kind of get that feel of isolation and like in them. But yeah, so that kind of works, but like trick is to keep breathing and you look so fine. Those then they needed to like tone them way down to really get it across because otherwise it just sounds like another garbage song. And like, mm-hmm. I know what you thought on those. Yeah. Um, I did think there were a couple times when. Um, like the song would switch and the way I have my Spotify set up, like the songs kind of bleed into one another. And there were a couple of times when I like didn't realize that the song <laughs> had switched. Cause some of the, some of them do sound very similar. And of course, like, you know, any artist that's going to be the case cause it's the same artist. Right. Um, yeah. But, but I did kind of have that problem, even like thinking about what I thought about these songs afterwards, I had to be like, which song is that? Like, what one is that? You know, um, and and part of it is, I, it's not the kind of music that I listen to a lot, so I I missed a lot of the small things that differentiate these songs. You know, the more you listen to a certain genre, the more you can pick out the differences, and the more two different songs in the same genre sound different to you. Um, so that's part of it. But but they did sound kind of very similar to me. Um, of what you were talking about there at, at the end how you know it's, it's just another garbage song it sounds the same um and i kind of i i think i also kind of ran into that when i was listening to this album for sure yeah my question is where's version 1.0 <laughs> oh version oh that that was the i guess that was sort of the joke that they had going because like they had decided instead of like to Try a completely new sound for their second album. They just uh, We're gonna sort keep of going with what worked. Yeah, yeah. Just like take it, 
just like amplify it. So the version 1.0, that's the original, that's the first album, just self-titled garbage. Oh, I see, I see. There you go. On another level. This is... Get the brain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it it is funny, too, when I was listening to them, I I didn't... um, like do I, the only thing I knew about them was what you had told me um, when you suggested them. So I didn't know like what what time period they were from um, or anything like that. And so I was listening to them. I was like, this sounds like '90s. I was like, and I, you know, like like I listen to pop music. I listen to very modern music. So I'm not the kind of person who listens to a song and thinks like, oh yeah, '70s. You know. So <laughs> I felt like they had a very like quintessentially '90s sound. Even I, who's like a, a musical pleb, could distinguish. Oh, could, no. could detect. Um, so I really, I, and I liked that. I thought that was really cool. Um, you know, I was born in, in 1997, so I'm not a 90s kid, right? But both my older sisters are 90s kids, and so they kind of passed down some of their, um, you know, 90s culture to me. So in some ways, it was kind of nostalgic, even though I've never, you know, listened to this band before or heard this album before. Um, the sounds kind of reminded me of my childhood a little bit, <laughs> which I don't want to have a childhood. I don't want. To... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, it does. It does sound like a. It is definitely a very nice album. Like the, just sort of their melody styles, uh, all the sort of electronics mixed with rock. That was like. 90s was a very good decade for that because you had like the Manchester scene right at the beginning with uh, over in Britain and then like uh, all the industrial metal guys and even like uh, later on a Chumbawamba to to an extent. So there were a lot. This is sort. This is basically like if if Trent Reznor was a giant pop nerd, this is what Nine Inch Nails would sound like instead of (laughs) closer on it. But yeah, it was also interesting to as I was reading interviews and according to Shirley Manson, like they were when they were recording this, they were like making this huge leap in production styles from like analog production to digital, and so they were like they were calling themselves pioneers in that like huge technological shift. Which I'm I don't know enough on the history of production styles to verify. I I think from what I know, the first was completely made on Pro Tools were like '92, but this is this could definitely be early enough to be like one of the first, like still pretty early on. So I think, yeah, they wow, yeah, they were really was a lot of new ground. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, these three little cheese-eating Wisconsin weirdos and a Scottish girl with depression. <laughs> An unlikely duo, an unlikely group. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, any final thoughts or shall we? Yeah, I, I, I really think just the, I was, um, it, it just felt, it felt like it expanded my musical world um, yeah. in a way that I didn't, didn't necessarily expect. Um, I think a lot of times you think that you have the music that you listen to and that you're perfectly fine with that and you have 
music for when you're happy, music for when you're sad, music for when you need to study, music for when you need to relax, you have everything. And then someone will show you something and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't realize that I, you know, I, I didn't have a niche for this in my musical world, but like, <laughs> it, I, I like it. And it's, you know, I, I could listen to this more. Um, I think for me, this whole experience has just been, uh, you know, being open to things that maybe, you know, initially you are kind of have some trepidation about or think like, eh, it probably won't be for me, but I'll listen to it. But just like giving things a chance. Um, yeah. You can, you can really find something new that you enjoy. So, yeah, that's my, that's my big <laughs> takeaway from, from, I guess that's this whole experience, not necessarily the album specifically, but, but yeah, the album too, for sure. Yeah, that's great to hear. I'm glad you've gotten a chance to listen to to the woods. And if you want to have find more albums to check out, you should listen to the show on Spotify. Wink, wink, the nudge, nudge, gyrate, gyrate, flex, flex. Hey, Macarena. Hey, man. Well, I, well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Before I find more words to say. Uh, the albums that we listened to today were Into the Woods, original Broadway recording composed by Stephen Sondheim, and version 2.0 by Garbage. I'm your host, Caleb Clark. Oh, and I am Nick Guy. And thank you for listening to the Billy Shears Club. <laughs>